In college, I went on a three-week wilderness trip in far north Wisconsin, and they took away our watches. This was before cell phones, so there were no cell phones. And they dropped our group in the middle of Ottawa National Forest, where I assure you there is nothing except birch trees and pine trees and the dark night sky, well, and a whole lot of mosquitoes. And when it was my day to lead, the guide handed me a compass and a topographic map, and he pointed right there and said, that's where you need to lead the group today. And it was a nice lake, I don't know, 12 or so miles north. So uh, there were no trails or markers on the route, but I really wasn't worried. I had used topo maps a lot, and so we set out. Well, the sun was hotter than usual that day, and everybody went through the water in their canteens quicker than usual, and they were getting really thirsty. But uh, I wasn't worried because I knew we'd soon be at the lake. But as the sun started going down, and we should have been hitting the lake, I could not find it. That lake was just not showing up. I don't know where they moved it. I'm, <laughs> I'm staring at the map going, it should be right about here, and it wasn't. And, and to make matters worse, we were stuck in a part of the forest where the, the shrubs and the trees were so thick, you had to like peel them apart to get through with a backpack, and then you couldn't follow right close behind because it would snap back in your face. It was terrible. And then it got so dark, and we had no choice but to stop. So we found a mud puddle, and when we should have been enjoying nice, fresh water out of the lake, instead we were pouring this muddy water through handkerchiefs, trying to strain it, and then boil it, and it was all flat and smoky. And I've reflected, like, what went wrong? I had a map. I had a compass. But apparently, I had started just a little bit off the compass bearings, which, when you start out, is not that big a deal. It doesn't really matter. But the farther you go, it ends up leaving you stranded far from where you want to be. And our whole group suffered because of that. Well, friends, this same thing can happen with a teaching in a church. It can start out good. It can start out almost right there. But give it some time, and it can veer off, and then people get hurt. For example, uh, and I'll use a, a, a mild, I think, example. Uh, when Karen and I were young marrieds raising kids, we needed help. Um, and at that time, uh, there was a huge emphasis in the evangelical movement on marriage and family. And so many books were written and so many sermons preached, like seven tips to a happy home, that kind of thing. And that helped families like ours, and it also drew seekers to church. But that movement, which started out helpful, began to wander off course. Um, there was such a demand for marriage and family content, it meant that those topics got preached on during a year at church far more then their presence in the Bible would justify. I mean, there's actually not a lot of content in the Bible on the happy nuclear family. Instead, you keep running into Jesus saying things like, and who's my mother and brother? The one who does the word of God. Apparently, God's way more concerned about his family of those who believe in him. 
And then the movement got farther off when many of those books and sermons either implied or even came right out and said, if you follow Jesus, you will have an amazing marriage and you will have a really happy family. Well, empirically, that's not true, right? And in fact, you look at families in the Bible and many of them, like Abraham's and David's, are a complete dysfunctional mess, right? And the Bible's whole point is not that God suddenly makes those families healthy because he doesn't, but that God can work through even our failures and his gifts and calling are irrevocable. Now, what happens when a teaching starts out with good intent by good people but begins to wander off course? I will tell you. Single people get hurt because marriage becomes elevated far above where it belongs. And so you get things like church boards who are not seriously considering as a, as a candidate anybody who's single. So apparently on this church board, Jesus couldn't get on it and Paul couldn't either. Okay. Divorced people get hurt. Divorce becomes the ultimate failure and divorced people know I'm never going to be asked to lead the Bible study or come on staff. People in a hard marriage get hurt because they're already struggling and now they're left feeling, well, there must be something wrong with me or God must not like me because if only I were following Jesus better, I would have a happy marriage. And finally and surprisingly, even people who are in a good marriage get hurt because they are being discipled to think that marriage and family are ultimate. Well, Jesus, though he honored marriage, truly, he said it's not going to continue in heaven. And the only one worthy of everything in your life and the ultimate is God. Only he is worthy of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what happened was this gave cover for some Christians to say, of any expense, justifying it, saying, this is for my family. This is for the family. And so then no one actually needs to do the wrestling with, couldn't we have a decent vacation and take a little bit of the money we were planning and give it to the poor who Jesus said, when you help them, you're helping me? All that went off the table. The fact is, friends, bad theology hurts people. It hurts people. It takes us away from the real Jesus. It makes us less able to love like he does. So here's the question this evening. How do you and I recognize a teaching when it's starting to veer off course? When it's a little bit off the compass bearings? Well, it is not always easy to tell. It's really not because all theologies that end up bad usually start out <laughs> looking pretty good. And yet so much is at stake in our ability to catch on early before we get taken in and get hurt or the church that we love does. Well, thankfully, this short letter of 2 John helps us learn how to protect ourselves. You've probably never heard a sermon from 2 John. I know I've never preached one. Maybe because it's buried near the back of our Bible. Maybe because it's short. It's really not much longer than the Gettysburg Address. But this little letter is packed with wisdom that we desperately need. Okay, let's give you a little context and then we'll get in. Second John was written by a person who calls himself the elder. The elder. Or in this translation, it's rendered as your pastor. Which is almost certainly John. 
John the Apostle, one of Jesus' 12 closest friends and followers. Now, when John was younger, you might remember, he was a capital T truth guy. When a village does not want to let Jesus come in, even though they've never met him or heard anything he's had to say, they refuse him purely out of racial and religious hate. And John is so outraged at that that he goes, should I call down fire from heaven and incinerate them all right now? And Jesus has to rebuke them. Okay, but now it's years later. And Jesus has been working on him. And now John is a truth plus love guy. He's living in Ephesus, a city in what is today Turkey. Some of you I know have visited there. And he's been taking care of Jesus' mother. And he's leading a church there. And he's also the leader of like a network of house churches or, or small churches in the region. Okay. Well, in his own congregation, apparently what happened was a teaching got started that John had to stand up against. And that's what he writes about in his first letter, 1 John. Quote, these people left our churches, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. I'm writing to you not because you don't know the truth, but you know the difference between truth and lies. And who's a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. So now, John is, having taken care of that and lived through that, John is now writing this second letter to other churches in the network to warn them that the false teachers who created such havoc in my church are now coming your way and to watch out for them. He starts out the letter, verse 1, My dear congregation, I, your pastor, love you in very truth. And I'm not alone. Everyone who knows the truth that has taken up permanent residence in us loves you. He's barely gotten the letter started and he's already said the word love twice and the word truth twice. That's what he's trying to hold together. John is this guy who's full of love and because of that, he has to guard the truth. Verse seven, there are a lot of smooth-talking con artists loose in the world who refuse to believe that Jesus Christ was truly human, a flesh and blood human being. Give them their true title, deceiver, antichrist. Wow. Now, usually if we hear the word antichrist, we're thinking about one supervillain at the end of time. Um, but that's not what John means here. When he says antichrist, he's already defined that in his first letter, 1 John, quote, anyone who denies the Father and the Son is an antichrist. Meaning these people know better, but they're teaching something about Christ that's just not true. And by doing that, do you see they're really against Christ? They're anti-Christ. That's the way he's using the word. And in this case, their problem, the way they're anti, is they refuse to believe that Jesus Christ was truly human, a flesh and blood human being. Well, scholars have tried to kind of reconstruct what's happening here, and here's a very likely scenario. That some of the leaders, including one named Serinthus, began holding special meetings. I'm guessing they probably called it on the deeper Christian life. And they said, you know, Jesus was a human being, just like you or me. What made him special was that the Spirit, 
meaning the Messiah anointing or the Christ spirit, descended on him at his baptism. And that Christ, divine Christ spirit stayed with him until right before the crucifixion. And then it left and ascended back to heaven. The spirit did. Now this explains a lot. This is the way their seminar would have worked. They're saying, have you ever wondered why Jesus cried and begged to not suffer in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, because the Christ spirit had left him. He's just a human being. And does it really make sense that God, the one who created everything and has all power, would be killed? That doesn't make sense. That God dies? God's the only one who does not die. Okay, so you can see how the seminar works out. And you go, well, what's the big deal with a teaching that gets a little bit wrong? Let me walk you through. This new teaching means that God comes and goes. And notice, he leaves us when we need him most. So therefore, God no longer fully enters our world, lives our life, feels our temptations, suffers our sufferings, and overcomes them all. In the small church, getting this letter from John, saying, I, your pastor, love you in very truth, probably a significant number of them are slaves. And they've been receiving a lot of comfort and dignity from the fact that God entered their world. And now, hearing this teaching, if, they, if this teaching gets going, they're going to feel, I guess God doesn't much know or care about what I go through. Do you see how bad theology hurts people? But it's just getting started. After it wrecks the incarnation, it wrecks the crucifixion. If it wasn't God who died for us, what happened when Jesus dies? Just one more political prisoner executed. You probably used to feel so much freedom knowing your sins could be forgiven by God taking them on on the cross, but no, that didn't happen. You're now left with your guilt and your shame. All right, and then it, after it's wrecked the incarnation and the crucifixion, then it wrecks the resurrection. Because if Jesus is not God, the Son, in the flesh, how does he take up his life again, as he said, and rise from death? There can't be a resurrection. So maybe you had a lot of comfort knowing that when you die in Christ, you're going to live forever. Too bad for you. Now, can you see why Pastor John has to stop this and why he calls it deceiver and antichrist? One day, John walked into the sports center in Ephesus, and he happened to see there Serinthus. And he said to the people that he came with, he said, let's get out of here now. With that enemy of the truth in here, the roof's going to cave in. Now, John was not overreacting. Ultimately, the teachings that were starting up in in this little circle of churches developed over time into the full flower of Gnosticism, which almost took over Christianity. And what John said then is just as true today. Be very careful around them. Anyone who gets so progressive in his thinking that he walks out on the teaching of Christ walks out on God. But whoever stays with the teaching stays faithful to both the Father and the Son. So how do we stay faithful? How do we stay faithful to the teaching, true teaching about God and not veer off course? I wrestled with that this week, and here's what I'm going to try to set forth, if I may. 
basing it on what Pastor John was fighting and what Gnosticism became in due course, I want to give you three warning lights. If you see these light up on your discernment dashboard, you should watch out. So here you go. First warning light, it changes Jesus. John says, who's a liar? Anyone who says that Jesus is not the Christ. Well, back then, that's how Jesus was getting changed. And actually, a snippet of that teaching is still present today in mainstream Islam, where it's taught that Jesus was never crucified. Jesus, God rescued him and took him to heaven instead. Okay, but but this sermon is about Christianity's issues. In the 1970s, this is another time when we saw Jesus get changed, if you were alive then, there was a wave of teaching called prosperity teaching. Okay. Which takes Jesus, who is the model for our faith, right, the exemplar and the author and finisher of our faith, and swaps that out for Abraham because Abraham owned vast herds and flocks. He was very wealthy. And it said, this movement did, and many teachers within it did, said, or implied, that God wants you to be financially well off. Too bad that when God comes in Jesus, he's so poor he has no place to call his home. When he dies, there's no estate to settle at the lawyers. The only thing he had on was his clothes and those just got stolen from him. Now today, the prosperity movement has somewhat faded. And it seems to me, if I were thinking of the way Jesus often gets changed today, I would say he is this non-judgmental therapist. His ultimate goal is for me to feel good about myself. Today's Jesus nods a lot and feels our pain, but he never says a whole lot prophetic. Even though when he was alive, he was constantly making people feel shocked, disappointed, and angry. That doesn't happen now with today's Jesus. Okay, so warning light number one, it changes Jesus. Beware of any teaching that does that. All right, warning light number two, it creates elitism. All right, the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And these folks said, we have special secret knowledge, which is reserved for the truly spiritual, meaning, well, us. And that was and is always a huge draw. Everybody wants to be in on the secret, Everybody wants to feel like I'm in the know and everybody wants to, to believe that I'm going to be saved even if nobody else is. One bit of secret knowledge that these Gnostics had is that matter is evil. So you and I are really good spirits, good spirits trapped in this cage of a body like a songbird stuck in a metal cage. And it got to the point where some uh, people in churches were refusing to come take communion because it's the body of Christ. Now, can you feel what it would be like to be in church and you're going forward for communion, but some people are sitting there with their arms folded and you know what they're thinking. They're thinking, can I help it if I'm more spiritual than you? I can't be tainted like you, you people are. Do you see how that destroys church community? Beware any teaching that creates elitism. 
the, the Roman Catholic teaching that those who live a religious life, like a priest or a nun, are living a higher life. That does that. But so does the common evangelical belief that being a pastor or a missionary, going into full-time Christian service, is better than any other calling and higher than that of other Christians. Beware any teaching that makes some people feel like they're really in and they're better than other Christians. All right. So warning light number one, it changes Jesus. Number two, it creates elitism. And the third warning light, it cuts off love. It makes it less likely that we will then treat others with dignity and honor. Since the Gnostics believed that the body is the prison of the spirit, they went in two different directions with how they dealt with the body. Many of them became super strict in trying to control the body. Okay, ascetics. And today, we still see those Gnostic tendencies in some fundamentalist churches where you can't dance, you can't play cards, you can't wear updated clothes, and you definitely cannot feel something like a sexual desire. And Christians are left with the feeling that the body itself is bad and shameful when God created the body. Now, the other direction the Gnostics went was this. Since the spirit's good and that can't be destroyed, just let the body run and do whatever it wants to do. Well, you know where that led, sleeping around like a drunk frat boy. And in our time, sadly, there are some churches that have so adopted the kind of cultural zeitgeist around sexuality, they have a hard time saying no to any sexual act between an adult and another adult. Do you see how these theologies cut off the sacrificial love of Jesus? Another example, this Gnostic diminishing of the body led many evangelicals in our nation's history to care a lot about freeing people's souls and not a lot about freeing their bodies. Which is one reason why many conservative Christians believed and preached leading up to the Civil War that slavery was good and should be defended. Bad theology hurts people. I like what Shobaraka, the Christian hip artist, says. He says, I've had many friends abandon their Christian faith because of dishonest or dangerous narratives. This matters. I don't believe we need a new Christianity. I think we need true Christianity. All right, so let's bring this home. As believers, friends, you and I have two dangers into which we could fall. The first one is to be so closed to any teaching that is not word for word what we already believe, that we become narrow and sectarian. We've seen that. We know what that looks like. And when I get to John 17, the passage where Jesus prays that we may all be one, I will preach with all my heart on Christian unity and forbearance for those who have it a little differently than we do. But 2 John is in our Bible to warn us about the opposite danger, where we are so tolerant that we allow in teachings that veer off from the teaching of Christ and we think we're being like charitable when actually that's going to come back to bite people. Can we still hear today John warning us, anyone who gets so progressive in their thinking that they walk out on the teaching of Christ walks out on God. In Germany in 1933, the country got a new chancellor who urged the many smaller denominations to unite for better coordination which they did. And then he advocated for his choice of leader for that group, 
a man named Ludwig Müller. And when Müller was in place, he got the churches to adopt what was called the Aryan Paragraph. And with this paragraph, it said, basically, if you are of Jewish descent, you can no longer serve as a pastor. You are defrocked. In fact, it was even starting to happen to people who were married to somebody of Jewish descent. Now, trying to stop that and seeing that it was veering off the truth of Christ, Martin Niemöller started what was called the Pastor's Emergency League, which later became the Confessing Church. But most of them were not upset about the treatment of Jews. They were really protesting government interference in church polity and church decisions. But still, they were at least opposing it. So by 1935, here's how the church looked. There were 18,000 Protestant pastors. Over here, there were 3,000, or like one in six, who were part of the German Christian movement meaning their goal was to blend Christianity with uh, German nationalism, make Germany great again, and purify the Aryan race. Over here was an equal number, 3,000, on the other side, who were part of the confessing church and trying to stand up against that. And in the middle were 12,000 Christians who could not make up their minds. One way or the other. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Amen.